Well, your customers are, are super demanding these days. They want their content and website up 24 by 7. They want to be able to access it at home and when they're traveling halfway around the world. And most of all, they expect their content with features to be available right away. So how do you build your applications in a way that they're resilient? Because you know something will go wrong. How do you build it that in, in a scalable manner? So start from one, go to a thousand, go to a million, maybe a billion uh, customers. And more importantly, how do you make it manageable so that you can actually make changes without taking down the whole website or your application? My name is Robert Chow. I'm a product manager with Messaging Group with AWS. And I'm happy today to have with me Stephen Godwin from the BBC to share with us his journey through microservices. So today what, we're going to do, what I'm going to do is I will give you a, a brief messaging overview. Think of this as your 30-second uh, your ad in front of your YouTube video, but you won't have the opportunity to, to skip it. But I promise I'll be very brief. And then I'll invite Stephen up on stage, and he'll give you sort of the background, some of the challenges that he was trying to, to solve, and sort of his journey through the microservices architecture, some tips and tricks and what he's learned, and some, hopefully some things that you can take away with you as well. And then he's going to share with us some of the exciting things that he's doing at the BBC today. So typically when you build a, a system, you think about a compute block, some storage, and perhaps a database. But for us, we also think about messaging. So this is a critical component for us. And the two surfaces that I'll talk about very briefly, they're actually very core surfaces without, within AWS and within Amazon. So almost every, in fact, every single retail order that goes to e-commerce actually goes to one of these services. So you think about Prime Day, and then Black Friday, and then just yesterday, Cyber Monday. So every single retail order actually goes to these services. So the two services that I'm talking about are uh, Amazon SQS, AWS SNS. So simple queue services, basically a queue allows you to send messages from one producer to consumer and consumed by one, one consumer. Simple notification services, basically it's a PubSub service. So you can send to a mobile device, uh, HTTP endpoint, you can send to a Lambda endpoint, but a very common pattern is just to send it to an SQS queue. So both of these services are fully managed, simple, reliable, and fully scalable. So without any further delay, I'm going to invite uh, Stephen up on stage. So Stephen was a lead architect with, uh, with BBC. He was responsible for developing and leading BBC through their microservices journey with the iRadio and the iPlayer platform. Prior to that, he spent many years with IBM, but we won't hold that against them. So, Stephen? Thank you, Robert. Good morning, everyone. The BBC is the oldest broadcaster, oh, sorry, is the biggest broadcaster in the world. And since its creation over 90 years ago, Technical innovation has been at the heart of what the BBC does. In 1936, the BBC launched the world's first regular broadcast television service. Um, it's technically in high definition, although um, high definition meant something slightly different in 1936 to what it means today. The BBC launched its first regular online video service in 1997 as part of the BBC News website. And in 2005, the same year YouTube launched, the BBC launched a trial of a service called BBC iPlayer. Just under a decade ago, on Christmas Day, 2007, 
iPlayer left beta and went into full production. Today, BBC iPlayer provides the BBC's television and radio services online. Both live content, what's being broadcast now, and catch-up content from the past 30 days. It's regularly used by over 30% of the adults in the UK. It supports thousands of different devices. Mobile phones, tablets, smart TVs, set-top boxes, games consoles, and your PCs and your Macs. Each and every week, 10,000 hours of new media are published on the BBC iPlayer. Every 15 minutes, at least one new programme becomes available online. But if you go back a few years ago to um, 2012, we couldn't do all those things. And in fact, BBC iPlayer was having some trouble. In, in, those, in that time, we were running on physical systems that were in our own data centers. And they'd been commissioned three or four years earlier. And the systems were perfectly adequate for the time that they were commissioned. But over those three or four years, we'd added support for mobile devices, for tablets, and for HD. And the systems literally didn't have the resources needed to do what we were asking them to do. They were running out of CPU, they were running out of disk throughput, we were running out of storage. And so we were having to employ people to go through the schedule each week and work out which programs we were going to put online. There were television programs we had the rights to make available online that we weren't putting online simply because we lacked the video processing capability. Even worse, the system wasn't terribly stable. At the heart of the system was a database with a table in that database. It's actually spread across a few tables, but effectively it was a table in the database which listed the work that was to be done. And so for every job that needed to be done, there was an entry in this table. It was okay when everything was in a steady state, but if there was a sudden influx of work, a sudden influx of jobs to be done, or there was some sort of fault, perhaps in another system, and work backed up, then this table would get bigger and bigger and bigger and fill up with pieces of work to be done. That meant it took longer to query that table, and it took longer to add new entries to that table because you were fighting over the index. Because the downstream things that were actually processing the work were all reading this table, as it took them longer to query the table, they themselves slowed down, which meant the work started piling up more, which meant the table got bigger, and you ended up in this cascade scenario where you couldn't process the work quickly enough, and because you couldn't process the work quickly enough, more things were adding to the table, which slowed you down further. To get us back out of this situation, we would regularly actually have to effectively dump the contents of this table to a text file, and then feed the stuff back in slowly, so we didn't put too many entries in at the time and upset the system. As you can imagine, this wasn't ideal. This is effectively an anti-pattern of using a database as a queue. So we decided we were going to rewrite the system, and we decided we were going to also move it up to the cloud. The elastic nature of the cloud was really attractive to us because of, those, um, because of how we'd run out of resources previously. The elastic nature of the cloud meant I could add extra CPU, I could add extra storage, and I didn't have to worry about buying a new rack. It was a sort of linear pricing model. I could add extra storage as and when, and CPU as and when I needed it. Even better, to my business owners, I could give them a 
effectively a charge sheet or a, um, a pricing plan of how much it would cost to, if they wanted, for example, to double the amount of content in iPlayer. I could say, this is how much it costs. And those prices were pretty much linear. I could say, or even better than linear, I could say, this is how much it'll cost. It's very predictable. So at the end of 2012, we made a decision. We were going to move this service up to the cloud. And this graph gives you a really good idea of the sorts of problems that we were facing that made it very attractive, that move to the cloud. So this is um, a graph of days of the week against number of requests to process video, number of requests to put new video into iPlayer. And you can see there are five very big peaks and a six smaller peak. And these relate to the regional news programs that we broadcast. And what happens is at 6.30 on a weekday evening, BBC One, our main broadcast channel, splits from being just one channel to being 19 separate channels. And each one of those channels um, represents a different nation or region of the UK. So I get 19 live half-hour programs all coming in at the same time. The old system, the hardware-based system, really struggled with this because it just didn't have the capacity to cope. And so what would happen? It would take something like 16, 17 hours sometimes to process those 19 videos, particularly because there also tended to be live programs later in the evening that got mixed up into this. In the cloud, I can just allocate extra um, EC2 instances, extra resources to process that content. And it's a very predictable, you know, we know it's going to happen at 6.30 on a weekday evening. So it's a very predictable pattern, and we can just allocate the extra resources for the time we need it, and then destroy them afterwards. So here's the system I built, we built at a very high level. You can imagine this is an architect's diagram. It's actually a bit more complicated than this. If you look in the top left-hand corner, you can see where the broadcast video feeds come into the system. So we found some locations in our broadcast chain where we could actually intercept the TV signals and get them at very high quality. And the BBC has uh, 24 television stations, particularly made up of those, those variations for the, the nations and regions. We wrote a video chunker that captured those very high definition, that very high quality um, video, and broke it down into 80 megabyte chunks and stored those up in S3. We then wrote this time addressable media store, which you can see in the middle. And that enables us to ask for the video that was broadcast on a particular channel at a particular time. So I could ask for the video that was broadcast on BBC One between 9 and 10 p.m. yesterday evening. And what it would do under the covers is it would concatenate together, join together, all the 80 megabyte chunks that made up that period of time. And we're using a video format that, that supports that concatenation process. And it would give us back one large file that represents that program or that time period we asked for. This actually uses a feature under the covers, a cover that a lot of object stores support, including S3. And so you can actually get that concatenation to happen on the S3 side, and you're not sort of downloading the files and having to join them together yourself. So we've now got effectively a super um, video recorder. Um, which will have all this content in high definition, in actually better than high definition, very good quality. Um, now we need the data that's coming in from the bottom left-hand corner, the playout event feed data. That's data coming from our playout systems. The playout systems control what's being broadcast on our TV channels. 
So they control what's going out on BBC One, BBC Two, etc. They're almost, you can think of them as the systems where somebody goes in and sort of presses play to start an episode of Doctor Who playing on broadcast. And from those systems, we can get time accurate, we can get frame accurate timing data about the start and end times of every program. So combining that data with the time addressable media store, we can get a source file for every program that we broadcast a high resolution source video. We passed that into our transcode service and we wrote a sort of generic transcode service layer that could sit in front of several different transcode backends. And so what the transcode service does is it takes that very high, high resolution file and it converts it into formats needed by all the different devices we support. So you can imagine something like an iPhone doesn't want the video at such a high resolution as something like a smart TV. Originally, we used FFmpeg in our sort of proof of concepts, but um, to support all the different devices we needed to, um, we ended up using Elemental's platform as a service offering, and Elemental is now actually an Amazon product. Having converted that video into the right formats, we then store that in S3, and the final hop in the journey is this media distribution service, which takes, which receives requests from the audience and routes them to the video, and it also is responsible for getting that video out to the CDNs and the various other endpoints we use to distribute the video to our audience. So I'm now going to dig a little bit deeper inside one of these boxes and talk to you about how our live ingest logic works. So the live ingest logic takes that data I was talking about from the, the playout systems, that frame accurate timing data, and converts it from the rather old format it comes out of the playout systems into JSON data we can usefully use in the rest of our applications. And that's what this broadcast event notifier system does. And then it posts that data as events onto SNS topics. And in fact, it posts it onto two SNS topics, one for the start event, saying a program has started, and one for an end event. And Robert, I think... Yeah, in fact, just last week we announced a new feature for the message filter for SNS, and that is message filtering. And that actually gives the ability for the subscribers to selectively choose the messages that they're actually interested in based on message attributes. So that's a new feature that we just launched last week for SNS. And so actually using that feature, I wouldn't need two separate topics anymore, for one for start events and one for end events. I could actually indicate in the message header whether this was a start message or an end message. And then the subscribers could actually choose which type of messages they were interested in. And we have some systems that are interested only in end messages and some systems that are only interested in start messages. Even better, actually, we could now add a feature where we could add another header which represented the TV station that the event was, relative to, was relevant for. And so a client could come along and say, actually, I only care about start events on BBC Two, something like that. So as Robert mentioned earlier, we've got a common pattern here of an SQS queue subscribed to an SNS topic. So it's listening for those, in actually this case, in those, for those end events. And the next component along is our rights checker. So that makes sure, or checks, that we have the permission to make this particular program that's just ended available online. And if it doesn't, it sort of drops the message on the floor and nothing carries on from that point. One of the advantages of using SNS like this, though, is that those events are reusable by other systems inside the BBC. So our interactive TV services, which actually work with the broadcast systems and make various sort of red button options and things like that appear on digital television, those, those services also take data from this SNS topic. And there are other services inside the BBC which also read this, this, these topics to get data 
about when programs are starting and ending. So we've come through here. We've got as far as the rights checker. Hopefully we've got permission to put this program up online. And then the rights checker writes a message out to another queue, which is then read by the time addressable media store and passes on to the transcode service, which, um, so we create the high res file from the, from the time addressable media store, pass a request with that onto the transcode service, and eventually it works its way through the chain to the media distribution service. This is actually quite a high level diagram. In reality, the system's actually made up at this stage of about 30 separate microservices, and it's daisy chaining like this. It's passing messages from one service to another in sort of asynchronous microservice style um, throughout the workflow. So I'm now going to talk a little bit about some of the patterns we use for actually writing those individual microservices. So this is literally typically what one of our services would look like. It's got an input queue. It takes a message from an input queue. It writes a message to an output queue. And it does some processing that's been in the middle that's indicated by the message what it should do. We use this style because it suits us very well that a message is a unit of work. It's something that we want to get done. And queuing systems, and in particular SQS, are very good at sort of promising you the integrity of those messages. It's not going to lose a piece of work. You're not going to lose a message. And in our case, one of those units of work is something like getting an episode of Sherlock onto iPlayer. And if we were to lose it, people would get upset and complain about, you know, why isn't it up on iPlayer yet? Where has it gone? And running on each service is actually, it's a, it's a Java application. We use the CAMEL framework, and in fact, we've extended the SQS support inside CAMEL and fed that back into the open source project. And each of those applications is running on an EC2 instance and doesn't really know much about the queues it's interacting with. It knows it's got an abstract concept of an input queue and an output queue, but the actual ARNs, the actual physical locations, if you like, of those queues aren't fed in till deployment time and we feed them in through CloudFormation. So what happens if lots of work backs up on one of these queues? What happens if we suddenly get a rush of people trying to put content up onto iPlayer? So you get all these messages queue up. Now, we don't actually normally run just one copy of the service, one instance of the service. We'll normally run at least three instances in an auto-scaling group, and each one of those instances is in a different availability zone. But it's actually very easy with the auto-scaling group for us to increase the number of instances that we're running. And here we're using something, the, the competing consumer pattern. So when one of the nice properties of queues is when one of these instances gets a message from the queue, it effectively hides it from anybody, any of the other instances that are, that are working on that same queue. This means they don't tread on each other's toes. They don't both try to do or all try to do the same piece of work at the same time. And the nice effect this has for scaling is that I can go from these three instances to perhaps 30 instances and be pretty confident that I'll get a 10 times increase in the speed that messages are taken away from the queue because the, the instances are pretty much acting independently of each other and aren't going to tread on each other's toes and get in each other's way. In some cases, we actually connect the, cloud, um, the metrics from the queue, the queue depth, to the auto-scaling group so that if the queue depth breaches a particular threshold, then we start automatically spinning up extra instances to cope with the to cope with that extra workload.
when you get a message from the queue, you actually specify uh, amount of time you want the message to be hidden for. And we would typically use about 30 seconds. And you can extend that. You can say, it's taking me a bit longer to process this message. I want to extend the, the period the message is hidden for. Give me another 30 seconds. Give me another minute, something like that. But if the service fails for some reason, you know, the Java application crashes, the EC2 instance goes away, then that timeout will be reached and the message will reappear on the queue, ready for one of the other instances perhaps to pick up and process. And we rely on this because not only is it the fact that EC2 instances can and do go away, but we actually run Chaos Monkey in our production systems. So Chaos Monkey can come along quite happily and stomp on one of these instances, blow it away, while it's in the middle of processing a message. But 30 seconds later, or up to 30 seconds later with our default visibility, that message will become available again at the top of the queue, ready for one of the instances to process. And also the auto-scaling group will notice that an EC2 instance has gone away and spin us up a new EC2 instance to replace it. So here's an example of the good path. This is what should happen if everything's going well. An instance takes the message off the queue. We process the message within the, um, the, time, the timeout period, the, the period we keep the message hidden for, and we place a message on the output queue. Only at this point do we then delete the original message from the input queue. So this does run the risk of us possibly duplicating the message, possibly putting two messages on the output queue, but it means that at no point is the message, at, well, at every point the message is on at least one queue. Um, there's no point at which we're in danger of if the app crashed at that exact moment, we'd lose some data. So we always have this pattern of writing the output message first and then deleting the input message. And you have to generally design your apps for, you know, SQS can duplicate messages on you. I'll talk a little bit about that later. So you generally do design your apps to be idempotent anyway and be able to cope with duplicate messages. So the risk of us putting two output messages, you know, the same message twice on the output queue is actually not too bad for us. So that gives us, what I've just spoken about, gives us a sort of standard way to cope with scaling across all our microservices. The very standard pattern we can easily use for pretty much any of our services. And now I'm going to talk a little bit about error handling and the patterns we use for that. So earlier I mentioned how there is this visibility timeout, you can hide messages, and if the application crashes or the EC2 instance goes away, eventually the message will become visible again. But actually using a feature of Camel, we take that a step further. And if there's ever an exception we're not expecting inside our application, then with the way we've got the Camel framework set up, that message, if it propagates to the top layer, will actually cause Camel just to stop processing that message. It'll basically forget about that message and give up on it. And that means, again, we'll hit the visibility timeout, the message will reappear on the queue, and another instance will have a go at processing it. Now, the reason this is quite nice is because that actually smooths over an awful lot of sort of unexpected errors that you might come across. Things like network timeouts or systems not being available. If there's a sort of glitch in the system, you know, a temporary network problem, actually giving the message sort of, giving the system about 30 seconds to, you know, hopefully go away and then retrying often just smooths over the problem, makes it go away. And it gives us very standard error handling code. We're not having to write anything special here. This is effectively built into our system and we're getting it for free. So there's no chance of us making error, you know, making mistakes in our error handling code that we only find out when things are already blowing up. But there is a problem you've got to be aware of. What happens if that message is actually the cause of the problem? This is, called, this is poisoned message problem. What happens if trying to process that message actually causes your application to crash? 
That would be really bad because what would happen is you'd pick the message off the queue, try to process it, crash, visibility timeout would be reached, message would reappear at the top of the queue, another instance would try and pick up the message, try and process it, crash. And that, you know, you can see how that would get quite annoying over time and lead to you spinning up a lot of EC2 instances or restarting the application many times. So there's a feature in SQS called the redrive policy and sort of more generically, it's normally called a dead letter queue pattern. And that counts the number of times we try to process the message. And we'll typically use something like five tries. And if we try and process the message more than five times, then the message gets rooted off to one side, put in a dead letter queue. And in our case, we actually just have an alert set on that queue, which lets our monitoring team know that there are messages on that queue. That alert is literally set to go off if there's more than zero messages on that queue. And a human can come along and investigate why have we got a message there? What's gone wrong? Is there some bigger outage? It goes to our operations team who, I mean, the, normal case, the normal case for these sorts of problems are that there's some dependent system that's down. If some dependent system's down, we know that our operations team are already very aware and um, can see, yeah, okay, we've got messages piling up under dead letter queue. One of the nice side effects of this is in cases where one of the systems we depend on is down, we can actually, we actually don't keep on hammering it. We'll try five times, but we'll then move the message to one side. We won't sit there increasingly trying to sort of process more and more work and hammering the system, which is probably having trouble harder and harder. And we provide tools to our operations team so they can easily respool those messages from the dead letter queue back onto the input queue when they know everything is happy again. And there are further, further tools we have that enable our development team to investigate the root causes of a dead letter message arriving on a dead letter queue, if it's not a scenario like that. So I've talked a little bit about some of our generic patterns for writing these, these message-driven microservices. Now I'm going to focus on another component in our system, this time-addressable media store at the heart of the system. I'm going to use that as an example of how we debug our systems, how we understand what's going on. We've got, in the original 2013 version of this architecture, it was made up of about 30 microservices. Since then, we've added support for radio, we've added support for live television, many other features to the system, downloads and things like that. And so it's up to over 100 microservices now. <coughs> Each one of those is typically running at least three instances. You can imagine how much trouble it would be if you were going through the system and trying to work out what had gone wrong and having to go through the individual log files on all those, well, more than 300 machines. So from the very start, we built the system so that we could easily debug a piece of work. Each message, as it enters the system, so, for example, when we get that end event giving us the, the, the accurate times for a program. Each message that is at the start of the system gets given a unique identifier. We call it correlation ID. And that, message, that correlation ID gets copied from message to message as the piece of work progresses through the system. Then as each of our services are actually doing work, uh, points that are important to the business they'll generate events. And they actually generate these as SNS events. So in the example of the time addressable media store, if it can find all the chunks, it will generate that as an event. If it's actually successfully created the new high resolution source file, it'll generate that as an event. It isn't at the same level as logging. It's much more sort of business focused. It's I've made a decision or I've succeeded in doing something. But there's still at several key points for each service will generate these events. We generate them to SNS, to an SNS topic, and then we've actually got a bridge that takes those events and puts them into our, our log analysis systems, or use Splunk in our case. And that means I can take that correlation ID, put it into Splunk, and see every microservice that this piece of work has gone, every piece of work that's been triggered by um, a, program, a particular program ending. 
can imagine this makes it much, much easier for us to see what's going on. We can do all sorts of graphs and things of, you know, how many, how many messages we've, pro how many programs we've processed in the last hour and things like that, and look at all the different events and all the different systems um, very easily. And finally, I'm going to talk a little bit about a slightly different pattern here, which is the media distribution service at the end. So up to this point, all of the messages we've been working with have been around um, a message representing a unit of work, something we're actually trying to do. And in this case, actually, a message is more of a hint. It's more of a, there's something we'd quite like you to do, but don't worry too much about it. So the media distribution service, in this case, is actually audience-facing. It's taking requests from the audience. Every time somebody's trying to play a video on iPlayer, this service gets called and asked, where's the best place for me to get the video from? What's the closest you know, geographical location for me or network location for me? Which CDN should I use? That sort of thing. That means it's a unique response for every user, which is a bit of a nuisance, because it means I can't cache the responses. But what we do is we end up using a sort of mid-tier cache to be able to at least generate those responses very quickly. So we're using Elasticache and Redis in particular um, at this middle layer. So we've got at the back end an availability database, which knows when a program should be made available, who it should be made available to, in which, in which areas it should be made available. And um, that's, that's the source of truth in this case. But it's a bit slow. It's certainly, you know, considering this is the gap between somebody pressing play and actually seeing the video they want to see, we'd like to keep this sort of down to below 20 milliseconds. So we don't really want to do a big database lookup. Um, and actually, that availability database is one of our older systems, so it can sometimes take quite a little while to get a response. So we put this Elasticache layer in the middle so that we um, cache the result as we, as we look it up for the first time. And ideally, you just leave the values there. But there's a problem with um, BBC television programs particularly in that we're quite sensitive to sometimes needing to take a program down for a reason. Um, that might be because we don't think that program's particularly suitable to being online anymore because of a news event that's happened. Um, there's a case in the UK where if one of our documentary programs has um, caused a, a court case to start happening, and that court, the you know, legal proceedings to start happening, and that court case actually starts while that program's still on iPlayer, we have to take that program down or we're seen as biasing the trial. So there's actually, we only cache that information for a few minutes because we want to be able to very quickly take a program down if it's updated in the availability database and we're told we're no longer allowed to broadcast it. This creates quite a challenge on that, that middle layer um, because we've got these you know, 10 million, 20 million audiences, you know, lots of people using iPlayer and lots of individual requests coming in and a, yeah, a, data, a cache where we can only have a relatively limited cache time. So what we do is when we receive a message from the audience, or a request for the audience for the video, we first check the cache, the Elastic Cache, Redis. If the message is already in there, great. If the entry is already in there, great. If it's not, okay, we have to go and make a synchronous call to the back end. But if there's an entry in the cache and it's, it's fresh, that's great, we return immediately to the audience. If it's not so fresh anymore, if it's coming towards the end of its timeout period, maybe it's a minute old or something like that, what we'll do is we'll put a message on a queue which is read asynchronously um, by the availability database, and that gives a hint to that system that we'd quite like you to go and update the cache. It's not like super urgent, but we'd quite like you to do it. 
And having put that message on the queue, then we then immediately return to the, to the audience member. We don't um, wait for any response from the availability database before doing anything else. But this asynchronously keeps the, the cache up to date. It keeps on refreshing the liveliness of the cache. But the messages here are sort of hints. So we tend to put a, um, a time to live on the messages of about a minute or so. Because what we don't want is perhaps there's some problem with the availability database and a huge number of these requests start piling up on the queue. And by the time it gets around to processing them, they probably wouldn't be relevant anymore. They might even be for a program that isn't available anymore. So we put a time to live on the messages so that they, they expire after a minute or so. So just want to summarize what we've managed to achieve by taking this approach. We've got much happier audiences. You know, previously at the start of the talk, I was mentioning we were having to employ people to go through the schedules and work out which programs to put online. We don't have to do that anymore. If we've got the rights to put the program online, we're going to put the program online. That's led to a 100% increase in the amount of content that's available on iPlayer immediately when we rolled out this system and a 700% increase in the amount of HD content we were making available. And that's only increased over time. At the same time as moving to the cloud and moving to this asynchronous microservices architecture, we also moved to continuous delivery as our development mechanism. And that's worked really well in combination with this microservices architecture because we're now, when we're, deliver, when we're releasing a new piece of software. We're just replacing one of these small microservices. We have a very good idea of what the impact is going to be. And we can see what the blast radius effectively will be. And we've got tooling in place now that enables us to deploy a change in 15 minutes. We're typically making about 30 deployments, about 32 I think it is at the moment, deployments to live um, each week. And this is a development team of about 30 people. So it's about, you know, it's averaging out about one deployment to live per developer per week. It's also this system with the queues and how everything's wired together. It's very easy for us to adapt and add new pieces in and add extra microservices. And that's enabled us to first add radio into the system. So radio used to be a completely separate product, use completely separate back end, but actually has a lot of business logic in common with the video product. So you can imagine getting the media files out to the audience is basically the same problem. It's getting it to a CDN, telling them where the lo right location is for them to find the files. And there's a lot of actually the business logic before that point that is also shared. So using this approach, this asynchronous microservices approach, it's very easy to merge that extra functionality in and put bridging points in, put decision points in where the systems did have to be different. More recently, we've added live into this system, and that's actually been very useful. So that's, you know, simulcast, what we call simulcast, what's being broadcast now. And by merging that into the system, we've actually been able to make some real... Um, savings in terms of time, because we're already transcoding the video once for actually the live version of the program, we can now actually reuse that video um, as the catch-up version. That means I can make a program, perhaps something like a tennis match, which might be three or four hours long. It would normally it would previously take duration for us to transcode it, so it would be three or four hours before the catch-up version of that program was up on iPlayer. By merging the live system in with this, I'm now able to do that in about 10 minutes. So it's a much smaller delay for our audience in being able to watch a tennis match or a sports event that they missed, any live event that they missed. You can see the, I talked about scalability earlier and the um, increase in volumes we're able to cope with. We haven't, we've yet to reach the upper bounds of the scalability of the system. We, we literally, it's coped with everything we've thrown at it. And um, yeah, we're very, very happy um, with, with that. And we've got improved resilience. I mean, the system I was talking about that we were running in 2012 was a single site system. 
you know, we're now spread across the three availability zones. Um, we've got the autoscaling groups monitoring the health of the EC2 instances and restarting them if they go away. It's a much more reliable system. And we've got the, the SQS um, queues um, making sure that the messages, the units of work, are durable and reliable. So what are the sort of lessons we learned doing this piece of work? Well, so I mentioned earlier that it is possible for either during your own application design or actually SQS can do it to you anyway under certain error conditions, messages can get duplicated. So you might want to consider designing for idempotency. But I think Robert has something to say on that. Yeah, so actually uh, with SQS, the queuing service, we actually have two queue types. There's the standard queue, and we also have FIFO queues. And with the FIFO queues, uh, that uh, provides once-only delivery. Okay, so that means that um, in some cases, actually in the systems when we originally built this, I would have to write components that would look for duplicates and things like that. I don't have to do that anymore. I could just build on that piece of functionality. The elastic scaling is great for our sorts of scenarios. If we suddenly get a burst of um, work, you know, something like the Olympics is a really good example. Um, for the Rio Olympics, we basically, we ran a separate, iPlayer, a second iPlayer effectively. The amount of extra content we put through the system basically just doubled the amount of video we were putting online during that fortnight. And the elastic scaling gr works great for those sorts of scenarios. But even better is the cost model, is that I can go to my business owners and sort of say, look, this is how much it's going to cost. It's a very predictable cost. And I don't get these sudden sort of surprise spikes where I have to buy a new rack or I've run out of space in a data center or those sorts of things. This pattern of you know, these reliable pipelines and microservices that we've built with um, SQS in between them it seems to have worked really well for us in a nice way of us building a complicated workflow um, that's reliable and can scale and can cope with the different, um, the, the different works, the different types of work that come in at different types of day, at times of day, and depending on patterns of use. And yeah, the final thing I guess I would mention is think about how, if you're going to build a system like this, think about how you're going to debug it. We're very, very grateful we sort of built those patterns in from the start, which had the sort of correlation IDs and the, the event logging, so that we could very easily see what was going on in the system and weren't chasing through log files on a gazillion different machines trying to work out what was going on. So I've talked to you a little bit about what we've, you know, the journey we've been on, how we've managed to build a much more reliable system that can scale much better based on queuing technology. Now we're not having to run around dumping the, co the contents of databases out to text files and feed them back in to make the system stable again. We've freed up a little bit of time. So what we're doing with that extra development time we've got available now. So you can see that iPlayer forms sort of, if you like, the IP distribution part of the BBC. It's the way we can get video and audio out to the audience over the internet. We're now actually coming to a stage where we're seeing cameras and audio devices, microphones and things like that, themselves start to become IP devices. So you're actually getting IP streams out of some of these devices. And this increasingly looks like the way the industry is moving. So wouldn't it be nice to be able to sort of join those two systems together, not having to go back into the old um, um, non-IP world while we're um, getting content out to the audience, particularly things like live content. And so our R&D department have been working on what they call IP Studio and working with many of the standards bodies in the industry to develop these standards around what it would look like to get IP out of a camera, be able to store that sort of raw video coming out of the camera, perhaps in something like S3 or some centralized store, and then build tooling on top of that, which enables you to put a production gallery in the cloud where the director is actually choosing 
which camera we're broadcasting from, um, but using these sort of cloud-based technologies and being able to store all that raw video in something like S3. That means, for example, if it's a take a music concert or something like that, we can have video coming in from 10 different cameras, all being stored in its raw form, perhaps a production gallery in the cloud, perhaps that production gallery can be remote because of that. And we can make that program available online. But with something like a music concert, we actually typically then want to edit the event afterwards to make a cleaner version available for people to watch on catch-up. Um, this can be just editing bits out that you know, aren't perhaps particularly interesting to the audience as um, bands change and things like that. Or it might be because we don't trust the artist not to swear on stage and we don't want that in the catch-up content. Using these sorts of technologies, it's now possible, or it hopefully will be possible, to actually have the editor load in the decisions from the production gallery, look at what decisions were made when the program first was broadcast, and then go, well, actually, I've got the raw feed from all the video cameras. Perhaps I want to switch to that camera 10 seconds earlier than they actually did in the live broadcast. And so very easily make a much better quality copy for us to put available as catch-up. And you know, previously to do this, you'd have to get hold of all the raw video, export that from those systems, make your edits, and then from your editing system, export that video again back into things like iPlayer. And that could be a sort of three or four hour turnaround time. With these sorts of technologies, we're hoping we can actually sort of do that in you know, 15 minutes, half an hour, and make a big difference to the audience in how quickly they get hold of these, um, th these events. Okay. With that, I think I'd like to finish and hand you back to Robert. Thank you. So th thank you very much, Stephen. Uh, BBC is such an iconic broadcaster. I know for me, when I travel, I regularly tune to the BBC to watch the news, catch up. And uh, no doubt when Prince, uh, Prince Harry gets married, I'll probably be tuning into the BBC and watching his, uh, his wedding as well. So thanks for that. Thanks for sharing with us sort of the under the hood what's going on and giving us some tools that we can use. And as a product manager, there's nothing more happy for me to, than to be able to see you know, our customers use it and make use of, of our, the tools that we provide. And I also want to thank the audience for taking this time to join us today. If you want further information on what the BBC is doing, what we're doing on SQS and SNS, please feel free to visit our website. Thank you very much.